Hi, this is Delegate Eric Lutke, Majority Leader in the Maryland House of Delegates, and you're listening to the Maryland Association of Counties Conduit Street Podcast, one of the best sources of political and policy news in the state of Maryland. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here today with Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? How are things holding up with you and the family? Everybody's okay here. We're uh, staying safe, hunkered down maybe a little more than the last few weeks, but trying to be respectful of our friends and neighbors and just be smart about, about all this stuff. How about you? Same here. That's good advice for everyone to follow. We all know that COVID fatigue is real. But if we all stay in this together, we can get through it. And Michael, today on the podcast, speaking of the pandemic, we're going to get in a little bit to how the General Assembly is planning to meet safely, but also do the people's work. We know they're going to come back into session in January. We'll get into the plans, how things are beginning to unfold there. On the back half, we're going to talk with Debbie Thomas from the High Performance Leadership Academy. Really excited for that conversation, Michael. I know that is something that you're passionate about. You've actually gone through this training and you have your credentials. I think you have a book and uh, you are now an ambassador for this program. So I know you're excited to talk with Debbie and I'm excited to hear more about that. Good, good. Well, I think, uh, you know, leadership is on our collective minds right now and I'm, I'm happy to, to promote leadership opportunities across the county community. Uh, I'm also happy to have stumbled across a leadership opportunity within our our joint association, and I'm sure the loyal followers of the Conduit Street podcast will join me in congratulating you as the new leader of MACO's policy team, uh, sitting in as the legislative director for the Maryland Association of Counties. Does it feel different? Do you have a new chair and stuff like that? Is it all exciting? Well, we'll see. We'll see. I am... <laughs> I'm honored to to step into this role and excited for, for what's to come with MAKO. We have a great team here, and so I appreciate the, the kind words there. I don't have a new chair yet. That may be something I, I need to look into, but I'm not going to let that go to my head. I don't need a new chair. I don't need a new chair. I don't chair. know. Like, it could be like a big you know, Game of Thrones sort of thing, you know, some giant yeah. skeletal, you know, big you know, wrought iron kind of thing. I don't know. I'm just, I'm yeah. just saying. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly who you are, but we'll, we'll find out maybe. <laughs> Thank you. So, so, Michael, let's jump right into it. Let's get into the General Assembly, and, you know, it's December. Typically, right now, we'd be meeting with a bunch of legislators in person. People would be passing around bills, looking for co-sponsors. But we know the pandemic is real. We know that the numbers have been spiking. And we know that the General Assembly leadership is very cognizant of that and that they've been very thoughtful in trying to figure out how they can meet. We know there are a lot of issues that need to be tackled, important work that needs to be done. But they have to make sure that they can do the people's work safely and that they can protect people like us, stakeholders, they can protect members of the public, and of course, their members. But Michael, we know, again, that there's a lot of work to be done. So just because we are in the midst of a pandemic doesn't mean that they're not thinking about how to make this all work. This is all beginning to come into focus. I mean, let, we'll get into this, but what's your, what are your main takeaways here about how this is being developed and, and what's gone into it thus far? I, I think we're we're watching everybody make this up as they go along. And I don't mean that as criticism. It's just we're in uncharted waters, right? We've never, I mean, the the closest we've had to anything like this was maybe the 2002 session when suddenly there were some concrete blocks up around some buildings and we started having check-in stations when you came into some of the public buildings and so forth, which hadn't been there before. Uh, I mean, this is, this is unparalleled. So it's, it's no surprise. Um, you know, we, we did an episode or at least a half an episode of this podcast I don't know, several weeks ago, I've lost track of how long ago, but um, we tried to talk about what we thought the 2021 session would look and feel like, and that was mostly guesses. Uh, Now we're seeing some flesh on the bones. We've got a guidance document from the leadership in the House of Delegates. 
we've got some less formal but really similar sounding uh, suggestions from for how the the Maryland Senate intends to do its business. So, I mean, all told, I mean, they're going to try and make the best of a difficult situation. But like you said, they need to do the work of the people and at the same time be smart and safe about it. And, and, and so far, I think this adds up reasonably well with the structure they have in mind. But it's going to be an adjustment for stakeholders like us who are hour by hour watching what happens in the legislature, as well as many of our listeners who may have a particular issue or a set of issues that they care about and are paying attention more on the sort of week by week. Hey, did that bill pass yet? That kind of stuff. It's going to be different for all of us, and, and I think it's worth walking through now that we have a little more specificity. Right. So you mentioned that we did bring this up before. One of the things that we had talked about is you know, how they could meet and whether or not this would be some sort of hybrid with committees meeting virtually, but having to actually vote, take final action on bills in person. And that's because the Attorney General of Maryland has looked at the Maryland State Constitution and has determined, yes, Final action on bills has to be done in person. However, committees, subcommittees can meet virtually. So let's talk first, Michael, about how the House and Senate are handling this. The big difference between the House and the Senate are the number of members, right? So in the House, we have 141 members there, and you don't want to put 141 people in a in one room, correct, in one chamber. So no. how have they started to, to work around that issue of having to take final action in person but not wanting to cram in 141 people in the same room? Right. I, I mean, I guess to, to put this in some context, I, I think almost everybody now, after what we've all been going through together this year, we all understand the general contours of social distancing, right? That if you're going to put people into any kind of group setting, you want to try and find a way to have people be six feet apart and have dividers where that's practical and, and things of that nature, right? But like the six foot distance is is sort of ingrained with everybody, um, if you've ever visited Annapolis to sit up in the gallery while the state legislature does its business or, you know, come down to be part of a, uh, you know, a demonstration or protest or to wave a sign or to shake a hand or those sorts of things. If you've ever seen the floor of the House of Delegates, this is a true old school chamber and the little wooden desks for the 141 delegates are just tiny and jammed together to fit in that many people into one room. So it's the, the, the room itself, the chamber for the House of Delegates, the place that the Constitution says the business has to take place is really not conducive to getting 141 people in in some way that is spaced out safely for 2020 and 21, right? right. So that's, that's where we start is you need to you need to find some way to like bend the rules a little bit to make this work. Right. And the other thing, I mean, if you've ever watched the the floor of the house, which, you know, starting last session, they they were able to live stream some of their sessions. Right. You'll notice that people are walking around, they're talking to each other, they're exchanging notes, they're collaborating with one another. So it really is problematic, even if you were able to achieve that that social distancing, which you can't in the current chamber, there are still, you know, they still need to walk around and talk to one another. So that's something that I've thought about as well, is that collaboration on the floor, running around with piles of paper in their hands and passing them out, that is problematic. And so we know we can't get everybody into one chamber, Michael. What is the plan for how to space them out appropriately to make sure that they're able to go in and actually take final action on legislation. So, so the the trick here, and I I think this is a pretty sensible way to to live up to the letter of the Constitution and the law, but still be safe and sensible, is bring a quorum of the House of Delegates onto the House floor. That's what the Constitution requires but then have other members of the House of Delegates participate through a, through a video channel, but they'll physically be in the House of Delegates office building. So um, if you've been to the legislative campus, the low house office building and, the, and so forth is, is over 
you know, just, just on the other side of the legislative services building and that little open area lawyer's mall with the, the, the statue of Thurgood Marshall and so forth. The House office building has some big delegation rooms. For this year, at least, we're going to turn a couple of those delegation rooms, big meeting rooms, into space for about half the members to have their floor stations. So they'll they'll have their laptops and so forth plugged in there. They'll be able to participate electronically in the main floor debate, but they'll be physically in a separate building. So everyone can participate and see what's going on and be heard and called upon, but only just barely half of the members, a quorum of the body, are going to be physically in the House chamber. So that's going to be different. And on paper, it sounds like it's going to give everybody a fair shake to participate. Um, I guess, you know, the details are to be announced, whether whether it works smoothly, whether it requires a little extra time to make sure everybody has heard and had a chance to respond to things and so forth. You know, we, we all gotten used to zoom lag and things like that so maybe there'll be a little bit of that along the way but that seems to be the way that we're going to thread the needle at least in the larger of the two bodies the house of delegates only have a portion of the membership on the floor at one time and they'll be able to tabulate votes and debate remotely if you're in the annex yeah and that makes sense and we were watching it was very interesting last week to see actually a live lottery if you will right they were deciding who would be in the in the annex, right, in that second chamber, and who would remain in the House of Delegates chamber. So that was very interesting. We can post a link there if people are interested to see which chamber their representatives will be a part of. So the Senate is a little bit different. Fewer members there, 47. So we've seen the plexiglass start to go up around the desks. It seems like they're taking all the appropriate safety precautions in the Senate and the House of Delegates. I want to get into a little bit about how they plan on holding hearings. And this is interesting because like at the end of last session where they had to lock the buildings down, members of the public were not able to access the buildings without an appointment. Those were hard to come by. That is going to be status quo moving forward. There will not be an opportunity for people to come in and testify in person. Michael, we're used to during session showing up in the House or the Senate and, you know, waiting on a list of bills that we're going to testify on. So you're in the hallway, you're talking with other stakeholders, the committee rooms are full, you know, members are coming out in between hearings, they're talking to stakeholders, a lot of business gets done there. It seems as though the plan is to hold these hearings virtually. And we talked about that before. I think there are some benefits here, but there are also, there's going to be uh, some issues with process, I think, and that's again because you don't have that person-to-person interaction. So, talk a little bit about that and what we're going to start to see as this continues to evolve and come together, and as we get closer to session. Right. So, uh, I, I think there's a lot here, and we're at risk of drowning our listeners in detail. Like at the at the highest level, I think you have to appreciate that the General Assembly and their leadership. They have some must-dos here, right? There's there's have to do, and then there's things that you would like to do. So you start with the must-dos. You must provide adequate and appropriate citizen and stakeholder input, right? You want to have bill hearings, and you want to make sure that a citizen who has something to say on a proposal gets an opportunity to do so. So the old school way is, you know, you drive down to Annapolis, you hand over your, your stack of papers, you wait in line till your name is called, then you go up to a microphone and you start talking. Um, now it's going to be different through these electronic communications. Okay, but we're going to check the box of making sure people have the formal opportunity in the democratic process, small d, right? You've got to accomplish that. I, I don't think you know, the, the, the common causes and Mary Pergs of the world would stand for a system that really abbreviated citizen and stakeholder input. That said, for those of us who are more on the stakeholder side, right, you know, you, you Kevin, you're a social guy, you have really, really busy and productive days over, you know, flitting between two different committees in the House of Delegates, and you probably have 10 or 15 conversations over the course of a few hours, all in the pursuit of, let's see if we can work something out 
before the bill hearing or before the day is done or, or whatever. Uh, we're going to lose a lot of the informal process here, I think, by virtue of this being remote and kind of sterile, for lack of a better term, right? You're not going to be down in the rub and elbows with, with the people you just testified against, and there's, there's benefits to doing that, right? Right. So much gets done informally in the hallways and not just with other stakeholders, also with legislators. No doubt about that. That's where a lot of the work gets done. That's where a lot of the people's work gets done. That's how bills get passed. That's how bills move. And so it's going to be interesting, not just for us, for all stakeholders uh, of how to handle that and how to keep that connection somewhat. Because, again, it, it's a it's a critical cog in, in, in how this gets done, how the work gets done. I will say I, I think it's exciting, even though we lose that piece, that apparently we're going to have everything be live streamed, including voting sessions. There will be testimony available via PDF on the General Assembly's website. That's something that's new. It used to be, Michael, you've done this. We've all done this. If you wanted to see who had testified for or against a bill, you'd have to walk over to the committee and open up this giant file cabinet and go to the copy machine, copy testimony, and that's how you could see where people stood. It sounds like they're going to try to get all that testimony on the General Assembly website, which I think is a step in the right direction. And I'm interested to hear your take on that. You've been around here for a long time. Is that something that you think is going to be beneficial for, for everyone here? I, I, I have to think that we're going to come away from this session with like a weird tale of the tape about things were better in this list of ways and things were worse in that list of ways. But like the stuff you're describing, the idea of you know, other stakeholders' testimony and the contents of the bill file and so forth being available upon request. And by the end of the session, it'll all be available online and so forth. Wow. I mean, that sounds like a really good step forward. And, you know, back to my anecdote about about citizen participation. If you're if you're the person from Worcester County who's used to like, oh, I, I had to drive to Annapolis to wait for to wait all afternoon so I could talk for one and a half minutes about that local bill in Worcester County. The idea of, wait, hold on, this year I get to just submit my stuff online and participate from my living room. And it's going to, you know, I, I get the list of bills in advance and I get to know that my bill's not going to come up till four o'clock so I can do other stuff till four o'clock. I mean, that sounds better for her, doesn't it? <laughs> oh my gosh, that is a, that's a huge deal. If, if you're not familiar with Annapolis, there are everyday lists of bills that will be heard in a particular standing committee. And you don't necessarily know, depending on the committee, what order your bill is going to be in. You don't know how long other bills are going to take. So while the hearings begin at 1 p.m., you could be there sitting outside for three, four hours, five hours sometimes waiting for your bill. And again, that's where you get a lot of other stuff done in terms of talking with stakeholders, looking at other bills, etc. But that's a huge deal. And I think something that everyone will appreciate not having to wait and not knowing when your bill is going to come up necessarily. So I think that's a good thing. One of the other things, Michael, when we talk about the virtual testimony, so good idea, we're going to be able now to not have to wait. We're going to know when the bill comes up. You're going to get you know, your opportunity to testify virtually. But it also sounds like they're going to limit testimony to a maximum of 50 witnesses per bill. Now, that may sound like a big deal. We don't often see more than 50, Michael, unless it's a big issue. So for me, I don't think that's too big of a deal. What do you think about that? I, I think it's tough to say. Um, I, I mean, I think you want to be respectful of everybody's fatigue with screen attention. I mean, it's just a different thing to be on screen and, and so forth than it is to be in person. And if... I don't know if if you, if you're not in a profession that has shifted to lots of on-screen meetings and conversations and learning and so forth maybe that that concept isn't intuitive to everybody but boy it's intuitive to me that you you need to make some accommodations both for the members and for stakeholders so I I get the idea of limits on participation um at the same time like there is, there's got to be a little voice that says, isn't someone going to object if I'm, if I'm the 74th person who wants to sign up and say something on a bill, even if what I say is 
substantially similar to person number 19 and 33, I still kind of want to be heard. We'll, we'll see how that shakes out. It's not, it's not like there's a hundred bills a year, 200 bills a year where the test testimony list is a hundred people long. I mean, this is, you know, a couple dozen things and it's high profile and controversial stuff. Those tend to be long hearings anyway. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how that really ends up working its way out. But I, I, I certainly understand the, the, the sentiment there. Yeah, me too. And I don't think it's necessarily rigid in terms of limiting it to 50. I think it's always the, the, the discretion of the chair as to how they want to move forward. So I think we'll have to wait and see how that gets handled. But that is at least the goal, at, like you said, I think, to limit the screen fatigue and to, to keep things moving. And Michael, speaking of keeping things moving, we've heard a lot of anecdotes about the General Assembly being very serious about getting off to a fast start. We yeah. know... Once the General Assembly gets to town, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. There are a lot of briefings that often take place. But during the, the first few days and weeks of session, you may go to committee and you have a couple briefings, but there aren't any hearings. And it really gets off to a slow start. Bill hearings don't start getting scheduled for, for a bit. It sounds like they would like to get off to a quick start. We've heard this stuff before, but to me, it's different this time. It sounds like they're really serious about hitting the ground running when they come into town to Annapolis to start session for 2021. Yeah, I think all signs point that way. I've, I've had a couple conversations with people who are part of the legislative staff cohort. And, um, you know, their bill drafters are really busy. Lots of requests for bills to be pre-filed and reintroduced from prior years. So there's always been a process for that, but I, I think maybe the word really has gotten out that your your bills are going to have the best opportunity for a full vetting if you get them in quickly. So it doesn't serve your interest to just take your idea, leave it on a sheet of paper, walk it around to a bunch of your friends, gather a bunch of co-sponsors in the time-honored tradition. I mean, I, I've been doing this stuff in Annapolis a really long time, and that, that has been a traditional thing. I don't want to put in my bill now because if I walk around with it for two weeks, I might get people to scribble their initials on here and I could introduce it with 25 names in addition to mine. That gives me a better shot. So that sounds great. Um, the, the word seems to have gotten out specifically, get your bills in quickly. Pre-filed bills are going to have an excellent shot. So get those in quickly. And we are fully expecting, I know we at Mako are fully expecting that Day one of the session is, is what, January 13th? I mean, the next day, that Thursday, is going to be a real day. Committees are going to open up, and there's going to be six, eight, ten bills to hear on their docket for that day, as opposed to, like you said, the one or two briefings, and then you're done by lunchtime. Right. And, you know, speaking of the committees, we don't yet know. I mean, the, the hearings are going to be virtual we don't know if that means that the committees will be together in the committee room, whether or not they'll be back in their offices at the complex, or whether they'll be back in their districts, whether or not they could do this from home and maybe come in on the days that they have to vote. We're not exactly sure what that looks like yet, but right. I think that's to be determined. You mentioned something you know, about co-sponsors, and, and I want to talk about that a little bit. The House is encouraging folks not to try and go out and get co-sponsors. You mentioned walking around with that blue piece of paper and getting everybody to initial, to, to co-sponsor your bill. Right. Everybody knows they like to have a lot of names at the top of a bill. It looks good. They're not going to be doing that because of the process. And that process is old, outdated, and antiquated, in my opinion. Michael, you're... <laughs> been doing this a long time. Process is important to you. It's important to the, the General Assembly. But why can't we just say, okay, if you want to sponsor my bill, you can shoot me an email or you can do something through a website to where you could send a digital signature and everybody knows you want to be a co-sponsor of this bill. It doesn't seem like that is happening at the moment. That could change. But what are your thoughts about maybe this change <laughs> moving forward? Maybe it's not the walk around and get everybody's signature on the, on the blue sheet. I mean, is this something that maybe could be changed moving forward? <laughs> I, I remember we, we had an episode some time ago where we, we got into cancel culture and we started saying, like, you know, the Iowa caucuses needed to be canceled and so forth. Maybe we need to do a, a version of cancel culture for, like, old school process. So maybe it's time for 
dinosaurs like me to wake up and say, maybe this doesn't need to be done with a sheet of blue paper and a blue ballpoint pen signed by the member herself, that maybe it would be okay to have a secure login and do this on a website. That way the drafter has it just, you know, boom, it just automatically drops in all the names into the the bill drafting template. I mean, you know, maybe it's time to catch up with the times, but for, for this session, I think the house is basically saying, let's stop passing around sheets of paper where everybody's licking their fingers and, and handing it to the next person and so forth under the circumstances, best not to do that. Yes, I agree. And yes, I think easy for the bill drafters for the members, for everybody involved, if there's another way to potentially do this. And I want to get back a little bit to streaming voting sessions, which, again, is something that members typically don't like to do. Uh, We know that the hearings are always streamed. The floor sessions will be streamed in 2021. We understand with limited access, the number one goal is to make sure that there's transparency, is to make sure that people have the opportunity to provide input on legislation. But moving forward, again, is this part of the cancel culture where we don't need to live stream voting sessions once people are allowed to to convene again and get back together. Is this something that you think you could just put back in the bag? You know, now that people know you have the capability to basically live stream everything. I mean, is this another one where, okay, we're going to have to start doing this moving forward because people know now that we can do it and we can't get away with not doing it anymore? I mean, you just laid out the case, I think, right? I mean, you know, once, once, you've shown that it technically can be done and presumably without any particular downsides, then how do you tell the public, well, we're no longer going to do this. So yeah, I, I, I think whatever the, you know, it's going to bend in the direction of open and online and transparent and visible and participatory. So that's a good thing. That, I mean, on, on balance, these things are good advances, and some of this is going to be born of the necessity of this pandemic and turn out to be good enough ideas to live beyond the pandemic and just become the way we do things going forward. And I, I think it'll be all for the better. We'll take the best ideas from this year, and they'll still be in place long beyond, you know, long past the, the circumstances of the moment. I think that's, I think it's a good thing. I agree. And I have one more issue that I want to get into, Michael, here on my notes. And there seems to be a lot of chatter, at least in the House, about how they're going to handle bills that were passed in the previous session. So, Michael, let's say you have a bill, you're a delegate, the bill got through your committee, it passed on the floor of the House of Representatives, it got sent over to the Senate, and maybe it stalled, maybe it stalled because the session was abbreviated, maybe mm-hmm. the Senate didn't like it. But it seems to be that, and again, this is all going to be up to the discretion of committee chairs, that if you have a bill that passed through the House, so you're a delegate, again, you're introducing the same exact bill that you did last year, it's in the same committee, it passed, that bill, instead of having another hearing in 2021, would just be put onto a voting list for the committee. So the committee wouldn't have a hearing They had the hearing last year. They understand the bill. It's in the same posture. They're just going to put it on a voting list and vote it out. This is all, I think, in an attempt to move things along like we've talked about. But there are also going to be challenges with that, Michael, even if it is the exact same bill from last year, right? I I don't know. I guess I'm of two minds on that. First, I mean, my first thought is, oh, my gosh, that's such a bold decision. Right. And like, oh, you're not even going to have a hearing and somebody who didn't like the bill isn't going to get to say their piece. So my, my first reaction is this is probably the dinosaur in me saying you have to check the box, you have to have the formal hearing, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I don't know, maybe the more I think about it, I, I mean, I, I've been in the room, you have too, many times when the bill hearing basically starts with the bill sponsor saying, we passed this bill last year. This is exactly the same as the bill we passed last year. Right. And And so like, yeah, here's what it does. Here's what it does. But this is the same bill. And that's a pretty clear message to the committee. Like we don't need to have a three hour slugfest as part of this bill hearing because we've been through it. We've heard all these arguments. 
there might be people technically who are there to sign up and they've, they've signed up to speak, but we, we don't need to rehash all of that. We've already really said our piece and the, the, the argument's the same as last time. So we're going to pass the bill again, just like we did last year. And everybody kind of gets that messaging. I, I'm not sure there's a huge departure if, if we obviate the bill, the bill hearing that starts with, we already passed this bill. Right. Now, it could get complicated if you have a new member, somebody who hasn't heard this bill before. It could right. get complicated if circumstances have changed out there in the world. And we know with COVID, so many things have. So, again, I think this is, you know, a general idea, but it will be up to the discretion of the chair. I think they'll look at this by specific circumstances and make the best decision uh, to keep things moving along, to keep everyone safe, but also to ensure that that process is there. And I think that's the general theme here, Michael, overall as to what they're trying to do and be thoughtful and figure out how to make all of these pieces fit, how to make sure you have the process, but you're also being safe and that you're moving, you know, quickly to get the people's work done and, you know, not expose people if you don't need to for a longer period than you need to. It seems like that's the overall tone of, of what's being done here and the plan is starting to evolve and turn into what will happen in 2021. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, I'm, I'm reading this as I think the community is generally receiving it well, that the details of the plan more or less pass the smell test, that it's thoughtful. Um, you know, the, the idea of remote committees are going to be weird for people like us, but there's not an alternative out there that's obvious and safe and more lobbyist friendly than what they've proposed. So, you know, so be it. We, we don't know what Annapolis is going to look and feel like for this legislative session, but they, you know, their job is to come and consider the things that they have to, they'll have a number of things that they must accomplish during the legislative session. Um, whether this becomes a far reaching, you know, let's tend to every topic or whether it's a, let's do the things that are at the top of the priority list and mostly leave it at that. I, I think that's TBA, but overall, I, I feel like, you know, what we're hearing from the leadership in the House, what we're hearing from the leadership in the Senate mostly stands as, yeah, they've thought this through and, you know, they're, they're going to do their best under trying circumstances. So hats off and we'll, we'll do our part to keep it productive. All right. And let's close this front half, Michael, with a little bit of advice. You and I have talked about the importance of being able to get in touch with senators and delegates because you won't be in the building. My piece of advice, and I know you agree, is that everyone listening here who has an interest in the session, get cell phone numbers, emails, any kind of contact information that you can get from a senator or a delegate, because again, you won't be able to grab them in the hallway. You're gonna have to be able to get in touch with them. That's something I know we've talked about. Are there any other pieces of advice that you would lay out to folks who are maybe interested in a particular issue or maybe haven't done this before and now they're walking into this in the middle of a pandemic. What adjustment do you think people can make to make sure they're best prepared for this session? We're all trying to come up with, with these ideas, but I think the cell phone and the communication info is critical. Anything else you would add? Any advice you can give being, you know, such a, a veteran here in Annapolis? I, I, I think I think you're right on right on target that the cell phone is the likely default for the most effective way to reach a member. Not everyone is a cell phone person and not everybody wants to do text messages and the like. So know your audience. And if the senator you need to reach is a person who has a personal email address and that's something that she'll share with you, then by all means use that. But you know, a conversation that you and I have all the time with our colleagues, policy work for counties, you know, within MAKO and who work for county governments, as we say all the time, you can't have your first conversation with someone be an ask. You, you, you want to have a relationship in advance of a reason to talk. So, 
you know, it, it, that used to be strike up the conversation when you're standing next to each other at the line to get mashed potatoes at the firefighters reception a week into session, or you're at Cecil County night, you sort of chit chat with somebody, right? That that would that would be the way you'd kick things off. Happy New Year, good to see ya. Hey, uh, we'll probably see you over in committee. Look forward to that. And then when three weeks later, it's boy, I hope you can support our amendment you don't have to introduce and say, hi, here's who I am. I think you learn the same lesson and apply it in this weird session. Um, but being able to reach somebody quickly, and that probably means a text or a cell phone call, that's going to be gold, without a doubt. We'll go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we will be joined by a very special guest, Debbie Thomas from the High Leadership Academy. We'll get into Michael being a recent graduate. We'll talk about that and why it's so beneficial for county leaders and basically leaders from any walk of life. All that and more after the break. Hey, Conduit Street fans. We just got through audit season, and I bet many of your governments are sitting on a long-term liability for retiree health insurance. Many counties and cities are looking for a solution to help them save today's funds towards tomorrow's costs. MAKO has created a cost-saving investment trust service for counties, libraries, community colleges, and our municipal friends as well. If you join the MAKO Investment Trust, you share all the overhead costs with multiple participants, you gain access to an A-team of investment and fiscal advisors, and you benefit from a portfolio designed around your needs. For more information, click on the links in the show notes for this episode. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. And Michael, I know you and I are very excited that we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Debbie Thomas from the High Performance Leadership Academy. Debbie, welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Kevin. I am glad to be here with you today from the Professional Development Academy. Um, I'm a professor of leadership and management. I'm the dean of a local college of business. And most importantly, I'm a leadership coach at the Professional Development Academy. So I'm glad to be here with you today. And I, I look forward to talking a little bit about um, what we have to offer. Let's start right there. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, your role with the academy, and what the academy is all about. Yeah, so the Professional Development Academy is an online leadership training program, and I recognize you might just think, what, leadership training online? That doesn't even sound interesting. Let me assure you, it is more than interesting. It is a fantastic program. Um, and here's here's what happens, Kevin. So often, you know, you're, you're doing a great job in your job, and then, uh, you know, somebody comes along and says, great job. Why don't you be a manager? You know, why don't you take over this project as if leadership is something and management is something that just comes naturally when you do a good job at anything. And that's where the Professional Development Academy comes in is it's really a practical program to help you figure out how do, can you be a great manager? How can you lead in a way that is highly effective? I love that because it's so true. I think so many people are stuck when they're, when they're asked to become a manager and it's like, well, what do I do? Sounds like you have that covered here. And you also have some pretty high profile people involved with this, it sounds like. We do. And so the idea here is I have a PhD, all of the leadership. So I'm a leadership coach. And you'll always have a leadership coach when you're in this this program. Um, and the leadership coaches, we know all about, you know, all the leadership theory and this program is based on all that leadership theory. But here's the beautiful thing. We don't bring it up in this kind of geeky leadership theory way, right? It is practical and it is ready for you to go out there and use like the minute that you're off the call with us. And what we've done is we've given participants access to basically be mentored by some of the great leaders in um, companies and government around the nation. And so we partner with um, over 100, it's like 150 executives um, to bring you this program. One of the people, one of the main people that we partner with is General Colin Powell, of course, who is the former Secretary of State, a fantastic person and an amazing leader. And he is with us every step of the way. So you'll be hearing from General Colin Powell throughout the program. And he just brings so much to the program. We have Marshall Goldsmith, who is the number one leadership coach in the United States, um, and he brings an amazing presence who will join us regularly in the program and be giving insights as to how to be a better leader. 
And then, of course, we bring in people. I'm just going to give you a few examples of some of the people that we have in here. Sarah Andrews, who's the VP and the CISO of PepsiCo. Pete Selleck, the president and chairman of Michelin. Mark Varner, the CISO of McDonald's. Dave Eslick, information security um, chief of Starbucks. And Harry Kramer, business executive leadership author. Um, he was the former chief executive officer of Baxter International. So we bring you fantastic people who can mentor you into being the kind of leader that you want to be and the kind of leader who will be successful. Yeah, just some small mom and pop shops there, it sounds like. <laughs> All of those are incredibly successful companies. And you mentioned the private sector and also government. And this academy is designed for leaders in all sorts of fields, but you have partnered with NACO, the National Association of Counties, to focus on offerings for local government leaders. Talk a little bit how that came together and how it's going so far. You know, I remember the day when uh, Tim Rischolte, our CEO, he started talking about, about government leaders and the impact that government leaders have on our nation and how impactful it would be if we could help form these government leaders. I remember him saying that. I said, tell me more. And he grabbed one of those dry erase. We were on the 10th floor of the coin building in Portland. Um, and he started writing on the window. And he's like, think about, you know, all of the government people who are out there, all the impact that they're having in, in their counties and in their states, and that they just aren't being given intentional leadership training. And think of the impact we could have if we make a leaders better at this level of government, we could make our nation better. And he got so excited. And I thought, oh, wow, I hope this <laughs> happens one day. And Tim has been tireless. This was like five years ago, right? He has been tireless in this partnership with NACO. And we have had a fantastic partnership with NACO. Uh, we have over a thousand participants from NACO who have come through from all states, from counties all over the United States who have come through the program. And we're finding this program to be highly effective for um, you know, county employees. And just that focus on you can be a better leader. Leadership is not something we wake up one day and we're good at. It's a skill like anything else. It's a knowledge like anything else. We have to spend time and energy and effort to become good at it. And that's why we're here is to come next to leaders um, and even potential leaders and help them recognize what they are already doing amazingly well and help them to recognize some things that they could do better to be more effective. Debbie, this is Michael. And I um, first, I'll, I'll offer my thanks uh, for you as the leadership coach for a cohort that I had an opportunity to be part of. I've gone through this leadership academy and have my freshly minted credentials and, and a copy of General Powell's book by my bedside and so forth. So I'm, I'm, I'm now, you know, transitioning to being ambassador. But I, I will say um, your comment about leadership skills not being something that you are born with or necessarily wake up with, but that you need exposure to that. Almost everybody, even if you come to this academy as an expert or as a standout in a particular area, uh, you can glean value from the experiences of people from the military or from the corporate world or from the technology sector or wherever. Um, I found that very much to be true. And I, I, think, I think your observations there uh, really resonate for sure. Michael, thank you for that. I'm so glad that you got to go through our program and that you get to be like the first hand person. And I just want to emphasize something you said. I have I have trained people who have been in leadership and management for 30 years and they have thought it was a fantastic experience and they learned things and they had the opportunity to become better. I've had people who have been in leadership and management for 30 days um, and have had similar experiences. And I even train people who aspire to be a leader or a manager one day and who haven't had that opportunity, um, who have also had really some great results from this program. And Debbie, I mean, I can tell you, hearing Michael gush about this program when he was going through it, and he is very excited about his book and his credentials, but it sounds to me, and I know from firsthand experience, like you've sold Michael here, he is not an easy sell. So that's, a, that's, that's very impressive. 
who else do you think would be a good candidate when it comes to county governments to go through this academy? It doesn't just have to be front-facing elected officials, correct? This is not just for local elected officials, but also for other folks in county government who are either in leadership roles or aspiring to be leaders. Is that right? Absolutely. I would say people throughout um, the county government structure, you know, county commissioners, council members, county executives, any county employee. And I, I, I like what you said there, Kevin, about uh, those who are already in leadership. It's going to make you better. It's going to make you more effective. It's going to make your team more effective. Um, and, and we do this thing where we have you connect with your manager regularly or your superior regularly throughout the program, which really kind of puts you on their map. Like I am trying to get better, look at the things I'm doing, and, and you gain the support from your manager or leader, and they start to look at you differently. Like, wow, you really are putting a lot of intentional effort into your <laughs> leadership. And it can, I've had so many people say, Debbie, guess what? I just got offered a promotion, and I really think it's because of this program that I'm in, right? This intentional leadership piece. But I have a lot of people come through the program who are aspiring to be leaders um, and haven't been given that opportunity yet. And I think that is is also an excellent place to come into the program. And like I said, I've had people, humble um, people who have been leaders for 30 years and come away having learned something and become better through the program and, and people who aren't even leaders yet. So that's one of the beautiful things. In this program, you're also, you're in a cohort, but you're also in a small group. And in that group, you're able to talk with other leaders um, that are in county. This, I think Michael could probably speak to this as well. It's a very powerful part of the program, and you will have people from all different parts of county um, work in that group, but also all different levels of leadership, which makes it a very rich and interesting um, time to talk with one another and to learn from one another. Hmm. Uh, Debbie, actually, that that observation about breaking into smaller groups was one thing I wanted to mention as part of this exchange. And I'll do so by telling you, um, we have a peer group with my association of state association execs. So the people who, who run and manage the state associations of counties across the country, we get together that we basically had a cohort through the leadership Academy that worked together. And we have been you know, having an, a, an occasional electronic you know, sort of town hall type meeting. And just later today, our topic for discussion is why did the subgroup structure of the High Performance Leadership Academy work so well for us? Why is it that groups of 10 magically unlocked so much discussion that we almost certainly wouldn't have had at a group of 40? Um, I really like that conversation. I like the, the breakout subgroup idea and it it definitely leveraged a lot more from individual participants in the group that I was part of. I think it was a really effective tool and my group of 10 bonded and banded and we're going to keep meeting and we're going to be a support group from each other for you know for for all of eternity maybe. It's it's a, there's something to be said for that. Yeah, and we have this comment often, the breakout group sessions are become some of the favorite. People are always nervous at first, like, I'm going to be with this group of people. I've never met them before. You know, phone conversation can be awkward or a Zoom call or whatever. And and after about week three, they're thinking, oh, no, this course is going to end in 12 weeks. I don't want it to end. I like these people. I need this. Some people call them, you know, their weekly counseling sessions. Or, you know, there's there's just so much that happens when you hear somebody else that's in your same shoes and they understand what you're going through. Maybe they've been through it and they give you some advice. Maybe you've been through it and you give them some advice. Some amazing things happen. And we have a lot of groups uh, that have come through the program and who say, we still get together because we became very close and we trust one another and and we get together and we talk through things together as leaders. Well, I'll offer one more quick observation and, and this is another heaping of praise. And, and that is, I was prepared when I, when I heard how multidisciplinary the, the, the curriculum would be, I, I sort of mentally prepared for, okay, there's going to be some content that is going to be really relevant to the public sector. And to the extent that my job is kind of nonprofit-y, then that stuff will be useful takeaways for me. And then 
I'll be able to ride out the stuff that isn't really relevant. When these military people or the big shots at PepsiCo and so forth are, are talking about their issues, you know, that's not going to be of much value for me because that's going to be corporate or that's going to be a, a different world than the one I operate in. I couldn't have been more wrong about that. And the notion of working with people and thinking about mission and thinking about where you fit as a leader with those you interact with and around, uh, so many of those lessons were were really universal. So I came away actually maybe getting more from listening to the tech sector people and the military people than I did the people who were already speaking my language, the public sector. So that was, it was an interesting revelation for me. Um, I, I set the bar low and, and it's exceeded by a, a vast, vast measure. Michael, and I think that's a great point because really what we're trying to do is make leadership accessible. And these are amazing leaders who have had huge impacts on massive companies and so many people. And when they speak in the program, they really kind of give it from the heart. And they're like, here's how you need to be as a leader to, to be successful and to make this thing um, come together. And it really isn't a technical, um, you need to follow these rules or you need to do this thing. It, it does come from the heart and it resonates in a way that you can walk away from that and say, I know what that person was talking about, and I can see exactly the types of things that I can be doing in my particular context to be that kind of a leader. And that's exactly what we're looking for. So I'm uh, really glad that you shared about that, Michael. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And, and the takeaway that I get there is these skills are portable, right? Regardless of whether you're in the private sector, you're in the public sector, regardless of what you're doing, the skills that you learn here, you can take them wherever you go. There's a benefit from hearing from folks outside of, of your profession in the same profession. These skills are just really portable and they're so important to have for any leaders or aspiring leaders. And so for our listeners, hopefully we have piqued your interest a bit. We will, of course, provide links in the show notes for anyone who wants to know more. But Debbie, where can people, county people or otherwise, go if they want to learn more? Yeah, the NACO website, you can always find um, Professional Development Academy through the NACO website because we partner that with them. And you can go directly to our website at pdaleadership.com as well. Um, Kevin, I'll, I'll also add that if you're, if you're in county government or you're a subscriber to the Conduit Street blog, which I hope many of our listeners are, um, stay tuned for more details. Uh, MACO, our state association, uh, is working closely uh, with PDA Leadership and, and with the High Performance Leadership Academy. Uh, we are hoping to unveil some opportunities for Maryland County officials uh, to get together. We're hoping uh, to promote interest in these offerings. I think it's a good value-added thing for our members, and uh, we want to leverage the relationship through the National Association and through this academy to, to bring it out to as many people as want to take it up. So we want to be ambitious on this. Uh, big things coming soon. That sounds great. So, of course, stay tuned to the blog, to the podcast as well. I'm sure we'll provide updates here. But, Debbie, thank you so much for taking some time today. This sounds like a fantastic opportunity. Again, you've sold Michael. He is now an ambassador. He has his credentials. He has his book, and he's running around telling everybody about the value here and why this is such a unique and important program for people everywhere, right? It doesn't matter if you're in the public or private sector. It's beneficial to everyone. We really appreciate you taking the time today. We know you're busy, but thank you so much. Thank you, Michael and Kevin. It's been fantastic to be with you, and I hope you all have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent to the device of your choice. You can follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for now, for Debbie Thomas and Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>